0: Thanks for tuning in to week three of the Roost series here at City Church. We are honored and blessed to have you join us for our online worship experience. It is our intent to share God's word with our community, our church family and online viewers like you. If you live in the Greater Savannah area and don't have a church home, we would love for you to visit us at 1624 East 38th Street on the corner of 38th and B Road. And remember, resources like this are meant to be supplemental, so get yourself to church. If you like what you've seen today and want to see more, you can visit us at citychurch.life or by clicking on the link in the description. All right, today we're going to do chapter three, and my title for today is Redeemer. So if you'd like to take notes, today we're talking about the Redeemer, uh, and we're going to dive into what that means. But before we get there, uh, of course, got to ask, why does Ruth need a Redeemer, right? Right. What, what's the point of a redeemer in Ruth's life? So I'm going to treat it right now as if you have not been here for any of the series. Josh McLean, that's right, man. I'm calling you out. You you were here for t- for chapter two? All right, all right. I wasn't I wasn't here. I'm glad you're here, buddy. It's good to see you. All right. So why does Ruth need a redeemer? But I'm going to treat it as if you've not been here for any of it and uh, give you a little bit of context and kind of give you a review of the story so far. Uh, so, so one of the things that we ask about the book of Ruth is where is God? Because you see in this, there, there are no what we think of typically as miracles, right? There's not like a big cloud showing up. There's not swarms of locusts. There's not lightning co- coming down. Uh, there's nothing like that. So where is God? We don't actually see God visibly active throughout the book of Ruth. It's really, really different. The majority of the Old Testament, God is actively working. And if you're not seeing miracles, you're seeing dreams and visions and other stuff, but there is none of that in the book of Ruth. So we ask the question, where is God? Well, I believe that God is at work in ordinary people in everyday life. And that's one of the things that I love about the book of Ruth, is that this is ordinary people in everyday life. I don't know about you guys, but I can't say I've seen a lot of what we would describe as miraculous in my life, at least not the kind of miracles that we see in the Bible. Has anybody seen somebody raised from the dead? I've not. I believe it happens. I, I've heard testimony from men I love and trust of seeing, men, uh, uh, of seeing people raised from the dead. I've not seen it happen personally. Has anybody seen a miraculous healing take place? A few more people, awesome, praise God. I believe that happens too, but you know what? I can count on one hand the number of times I've seen something like that take place right? We don't seem to see a lot of that in our society, which is why I love that the book of Ruth doesn't have any miracles in it, because as we dig through it, you'll see God being active in the lives of ordinary people in everyday life. So what you and I go through every single day, God is still there, God is still working, and that is what is one of the things that's so beautiful about the book of Ruth, is that God's still working, even if we don't see the miraculous, Now, Ruth also takes place in the days when the judges ruled. And this is kind of a dark time in the nation of Israel's history. Uh, It says in Judges 21 that in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And there are, if you read through the book of Judges, horrific stories of of just terrible things happening to people and the nation of Israel constantly in this state of serving God then turning away from Him and being dominated by other nations. It was a very, very dark time in Israel's history. And this is the setting that the book of Ruth takes place in. So, you know, a lot of the time we we hear these uh, messages that are like paint Ruth as this really romantic book, right? but it's, it happened in the Dark Ages, essentially, right? So, so maybe not quite as romantic a setting as some of us may have been led to believe. Uh, it's a time of lawlessness, and it's a time that is dangerous. Uh, we hear all kinds of stories of people raiding the land of Israel. We hear all kinds of stories of, of terrible things happening. And so this is, this is not necessarily a happy time in the nation's history, at least on the whole. And it is real history. Uh, I wanna make that really, really clear. You know, sometimes we, we have questions about the Bible and we're like, well, is, is that more metaphorical? Is, is that just, just a story or, you know, it's some of the poetry books, right? We look at that and we're like, well, I, I get what you're saying, but that's just a story, right? That's not real. Ruth is real. Ruth is real history in the nation of Israel And uh, I'm so excited for Jim McLean to talk about that next week because I know he's going to get into it, and he's going to do a fantastic job. So this is real events with additional meaning. Uh, Now, I want to remind everybody that the Bible has meaning for all of us today. A lot of the time, we look at the Old Testament and we're like, well, that was before Jesus. I don't know that it matters so much. No, the whole Bible, all of the Bible— has meaning for us today. So as we go through the book of Ruth, I want to invite you to to see yourself in these characters. Uh, So with chapter one, the, the idea was identity. And the idea the main point was that when you know who you are, it changes everything. So Ruth learned who she was, it changed everything for her. When we learn who we are, it changes everything for us. Chapter two, Jim McLean taught on destiny. He had a fantastic message. If you've not heard it, go on YouTube, find our podcast, go back and listen to it. You will get so much out of it, I promise you. And one of his main points was your choices change your future. A lot of us feel like we're stuck, like our destiny is something that's out of our control, but it's not. We have a God who has created us with the ability to choose and our choices can change our future. So that's chapter one, chapter two. And again, I want to invite you guys as we dig into chapter three here to step into the shoes of these characters because what they are experiencing is ordinary life, like you and I experience, right? So take some time to just look at the characters, imagine yourself in their circumstances. Sure, maybe you aren't familiar with uh, farming or harvesting barley, but you you work, right? You know what it is to work. You know what it is to have relationships. Many of you probably know what it is to, to lose a loved one. That's the kind of stuff that happens in the book of Ruth. It's ordinary life. So step into the shoes, see yourself in the shoes of these people. So here is the story so far. It's about two girls, a guy, and a barley field. This is essentially Ruth in a snapshot. Two girls, a guy, and a barley field. Uh, The first girl is Naomi the widow. Now, in chapter one, we learned that Naomi and her husband went to Moab, somewhere they should not have been, um, and her husband died. In that time that they were in Moab, her two sons married, both of them died, and Naomi was left with two daughters-in-law and no means to provide for any of them. One daughter-in-law, she stayed in Moab after Naomi urged her to. The other daughter-in-law was, uh, was Ruth. So Naomi was widowed after going into a foreign land. Then Ruth the Moabite is the daughter-in-law that stayed with Naomi. Ruth is really, really special because She was in her homeland. Naomi went into the foreign land and met Ruth. Then Ruth, after her husband dies, she chooses to go into a foreign land herself and follow Naomi, and she says that Naomi's God is going to be her God. This is a a really, really big moment in Ruth's life because she is having a conversion experience. Because, uh, and again, if you want to learn more about it, go back and listen to the sermon on, on chapter one. But the Moabites were a people very, very far from God. Ruth came from a culture that was very far removed from God and she had a conversion experience and she changed who she was. She made choices that changed her future because she chose to follow God. So she had this incredible conversion experience, much like you and I can have with Jesus Christ and then Ruth gets to work. This is what starts in chapter two. She's just working, she's working hard. Now, sometimes we have this picture that, you know, once we know Jesus, everything gets better, right? Anybody anybody have that experience? Once you know Jesus, it's easy street? No? Huh, weird. I thought that was all supposed to get better. It does get better. I promise you it does get better, but that doesn't mean there's not work, right? Because, There is salvation and then there's sanctification. Salvation is Jesus says, you're mine. I'm with you, I'm never leaving you, I'm never forsaking you. Sanctification is the process of being made holy, the process of being made more like him. So it takes work, Ruth gets to work. And that's where we come to the barley harvest. At the end of chapter one, the barley harvest has begun and Ruth starts working in the barley field. God has this incredible system set up to provide for the poor in the Old Testament. Jim McLean dove into that in chapter two, where there is a, a way for the poor to be provided for, but also to work for it. Do you know that something means more to you when you work for it, right? If, if it's just a handout, it doesn't mean as much, does it? So Ruth gets to work using the system that God put in place and she meets Boaz, the redeemer. Now, Boaz is an incredible man. Uh, We hear in Ruth 2 verse 4, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he sees his uh, workers in the field. He said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Now, it might be really easy to gloss over that, but what is taking place here is an incredible amount of respect that his workers have for them. How many of you, when your boss walks in the room, say, God bless you. I'm so happy you're here. No, not everybody does that. We might be saying something about God, but it probably isn't blessing, right? Yeah, but Boaz has an incredible amount of respect from his workers. He's a man recognized for his character and his integrity. His workers see that and they thank God for him. He's also a man who provides for those in need because he sees Ruth working in the field. He says, who's that? And then he learns the story And then he says to Ruth, listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Now, let me remind you that this was a very dangerous time in Israel's history, especially for a woman who doesn't belong, right? Ruth's a widow. She has no one looking out for her. Ruth is a foreigner. That means Everybody else typically doesn't want anything to do with her. Boaz says, stay in my field, I will protect you. He's providing and he is protecting. He protects those who cannot always protect themselves. Now Ruth's a very capable woman, don't hear anything otherwise because she gets to work and she works hard. And we learned that she is bringing home all kinds of provision for her and Naomi, but it also took a man who said, I want you here, I want you working in my field, and I'm gonna watch out for you while you do it. And that's the kind of man that Boaz is. So Boaz and Ruth, they work together in the barley field. Now I said this was about uh, two girls, a guy in a barley field, right? And so this is where it comes back to that barley field because this is actually a significant character in itself because everything in Israelite culture related to the land. And Jim McLean dove into this when he spoke a couple of weeks ago. Uh, There is so much about the land in the Old Testament. And it's not just because the Israelites themselves were concerned with land, God was concerned with land. Why else is there so much talk about the promised land, right? It's a big deal. The promised land is a big deal. Then the division of land, God himself describes how the land is supposed to be split up between the 12 tribes of Israel the use of the land, how they're to use it, and when they're to work the land, and when they are to let the land rest. God gives very specific instructions on the use of the land. And then there's the curse on the land. And this is what happens in chapter one, we hear about a famine, right? Well, we learn elsewhere in scripture that if the Israelites are not following God, that if they are not treating the land as he has told them, then the land will be cursed, things won't grow. That's when famine comes. So it's actually a symbol of the, the disobedience of the Israelites when that famine comes on the land. The land is a big deal because dependence on the land was dependence on God. They didn't have indoor plumbing. They didn't have sprinkler systems. They didn't have all the niceties that we have today, right? If, if you see that your tree out in the yard needs a little bit of water, you can go you know, grab the hose or fill up a pitcher or something and you can go water that thing, right? Now, sure, there's irrigation methods that can do something, but especially at that time, if it wasn't raining, they were out of luck. So dependence on the land was dependence upon God because God is the one who controls the weather, right? Dependence on the land was dependence on God, but, and God wants us to depend on him. It's the same for us today. The difference is that we have all of these inventions that are really good things, and I believe God is the author of invention, but sometimes we forget that and we're like, well, look at what I did, or look at what science did, right? We, we think that all of these things are man-made when ultimately God is the one who made the man. God is the one who gave the men and the women the inspiration to do these things. But sometimes we forget that. God wants us to depend on him. He also wants us to work alongside him. This is part of why the land is such an important relationship with the nation of Israel because it's dependence upon God, but it's also taking active part in what God is doing. So that's why Ruth and Boaz are working the land. That's why you don't see God just saying, here, everything's done, everything's taken care of. No, God wants us dependent upon him, but he wants us to work alongside him. He's not just Santa Claus, right? Giving us everything that we ask for. Have you been naughty or nice? No, God says, come work with me. And so chapter two of Ruth ends with this. It says, Ruth kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests um, was a period of multiple weeks. Depending upon how good the crop was, that could have been six or seven weeks. That's a lot of time, right? If you're working side by side with somebody, and they're working long days. If we, if we read in chapter two, Ruth is basically working sunup to sundown, and she's working hard. Do you think maybe you get to know somebody a little bit if you're working in that close proximity with them? I think so. So Ruth put in a lot of work, and in that work, she is changing her destiny because a lot's taking place kind of behind the scenes while she's hard at work. She is changing her future. And if we want to change our future, it will take work in the present. And sometimes we get these kind of pie in the sky dreams of what life could be like, but we don't actually act on them. Well, Ruth just did what she knew how to do. She, she started just working. And because she started working, because of where she was at, because of the circumstances that, that God really arranged, even though we don't see his hand visibly in there, her future is being changed. And at this point, Ruth and Naomi have been well provided for. As Jim McLean was speaking a couple of weeks ago, he said that first day that uh, Ruth worked, she came home with probably 25 pounds of barley. Can you imagine 25 pounds of barley for two people? That's a lot of food for two people. That probably lasted them a little while. And that was just picking up gleanings. Can you imagine how much they had stocked up over the course of maybe seven, eight weeks? They have enough food for a long time, so they've been well provided for. Their immediate future is secure. But Naomi, she begins looking beyond the immediate. It's really good to make sure that you you are set up and that you're taken care of in the immediate, but it's something else entirely to look to the future and plan for the future, isn't it? So this is what Naomi starts to do, and she starts to play matchmaker. So that's what brings us into chapter 3. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, that is to Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? So Naomi is looking to the future. She's saying, should I not seek rest for you? She has hope for Ruth's future. Now, what's really interesting to me is that over this period of, of several weeks, Naomi has gone from calling herself bitter in chapter 1 to this place of hope. She's looking towards the future. Maybe she's not quite so bitter anymore. Maybe God's been doing a work in her heart as well. So she has hope for Ruth's future. She says to Ruth, is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now winnowing barley is separating the the grain from the chaff. So there's the stuff you can eat and there's the stuff that you can't. And of course you wanna separate those things. Otherwise you're gonna have some really nasty tasting bread. Uh, So they have the time to do that, and this is actually a a celebration at the end of the harvest. So they've worked together for weeks at this point. They've really gotten to know each other and to see one another's character, Ruth and Boaz have. Uh, And now it's party time, right? Isn't it nice to go and celebrate after you've worked hard? We had an event at work not too long ago, and it was a a ton of work just going forward for this event, this celebration for graduates, and um, it, it was a lot. And It came together really well. And the next day my boss came in, he bought bagels for the whole office. He was like, guys, that went so well. And we just kind of celebrated that, right? You guys like to enjoy and celebrate after some good work, after things really come together? Yeah, yeah, it's nice. And you know what, that's what they're doing here is that now it's time to celebrate. It's party time because the harvest has gone well. God has blessed them and things are going well. And so, of course you gotta get ready for the party. And Naomi tells her, wash, therefore, because you probably stink. I mean, working, really, working long hours in the sun in the barley field, you probably stink. So, so Naomi advises Ruth, wash and anoint yourself. That means to you know, put on some perfume, put on some oils, put on your cloak. That's that nice dress. Any lady's got a party dress, a nice dress that you put on for events? No. Huh, that's weird. Husbands, you need to go buy your wife a nice dress. I'm just going to say that. So she puts on her party dress, and go down to the threshing floor, go down to where the party's at, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. So this is how to prepare for a hot date, right? I mean, really. At least this is what Naomi's thinking. Ruth may be like, oh yeah, sure. It's, I don't know, is, is Ruth just kind of oblivious to what Naomi's doing? Maybe, maybe not, but, but really, this is how to prepare for a hot date. Now, for, for those of you that are in a relationship, uh, I want you to think back to, to that first date. Did you maybe take a little bit more care? Did you maybe take a little bit more time? Ladies, maybe you took a little bit more time to do your makeup or to, to pick out the right outfit. Guys, I hope you showered. Maybe put on some deodorant, maybe even shaved. I don't know. But I, I remember my and Crystal's first date. Uh, we actually went out for her birthday and I've got, a, I've got a very young face. That's why I grew out the beard, because people kept asking me if I was in high school. Um, on our first date, we're celebrating her 25th birthday, and we get asked if we're going to homecoming because we're all dressed up. <laughs> yeah, but you know, we were all dressed up. I took the time to put on some nice clothes. I put on a tie. Uh, you'll notice I don't wear ties very often. I feel like ties are a torture device. Um, But, you know, Crystal got all dressed up. She looked beautiful. And so you take time, right? You take time to prepare for that hot date. And then the instruction continues. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. So you got all your instructions. You're going on your hot date. And then this date just got weird, right? (laughs) Like, how many of you on your first date were like, oh, let me just uncover your feet and snuggle up? Now, I don't know what you're into in the privacy of your own home, but let me just tell you, in a public setting, that is frowned upon, okay? If that is your first date, Pastor Jim has counseling sessions available. That's, that's kind of some weird instruction, though, isn't it? I would be a little weirded out, and maybe Ruth was a little bit weirded out. Now, now culturally, Naomi understands the relevance of this, but maybe Ruth doesn't. So maybe there was a little bit of coaching. Okay, Ruth, this is gonna sound a little weird, but here's what I want you to do. And if Boaz is who Naomi thinks he is, this will be something beautiful. Because Naomi knows if you go and do this and you do this as I'm telling you to do it, and if Boaz is the man who I think he is, then this is going to be amazing. You ever have those high expectations for that date? whether it's the first date or something else, right? Like, man, if this goes the way I think it's gonna go, it's gonna be pretty awesome. When I asked Crystal out the first time, I thought, man, if this goes the way I think it's gonna go, it's gonna be pretty awesome. And she told me, no, that's all right. Eventually she learned how awesome I am. (laughs) That's a story for another time. But uh, yeah, I love my wife. I'm so thankful for her and ultimately, It was awesome, things turned out the way even better than I hoped. And that's the place that Naomi is in. She's like, if things, if things are gonna turn out the way I think they are, this is going to be amazing because Naomi has seen Boaz's character as well, hasn't she? She has seen Ruth come home with 25 pounds of barley. Now, sure, Ruth's working hard, but 25 pounds of barley for one day's work, she's like, huh, something else is going on here. Like, I get that you're working hard, but this is a lot more than I expected you to come home with. So this is going to turn into something beautiful, or at least that's the hope that Naomi has. And this is what Ruth replied. She didn't say, hey, wait a minute. This is kind of weird. Can you, can you go back and explain that part again? No, she just replied, all that you say, I will do. Talk about trust, right? I mean, how many of you would take advice like that and be like, yeah, I got it. Doing it. So for Ruth, this takes an incredible amount of trust in Naomi. It takes vulnerability. She's going out, she's putting herself out there, not really knowing what's gonna happen. Kind of like that first date scenario again, right? We, we kind of put ourselves out there, we're taking a risk. We're not really sure what's gonna happen. She's being incredibly vulnerable. She's also being incredibly brave. Remember that she's a foreign woman. She really has no rights as a woman in that time, right? It also is this time when there's all kinds of bandits, all kinds of enemies, all kinds of people that are you know, just being predators out there that would try and hurt somebody, especially a woman who is isolated, right? And that's the picture that they might have of Ruth. Now that's not how it actually is because we know that, that Ruth loves God, we know that Ruth has Naomi, and we know that, that even though we don't yet know how the story's gonna go, Boaz has been helping provide Ruth and protect, for her, or protect her, right? But she is still in this place of vulnerability, and it's an incredibly brave thing for her to do, to put herself out there, to go to this place where there are these threats. But she, she trusts Naomi, she's vulnerable, and she's brave, and she goes. In chapter, excuse me, verse, verse 6, in chapter 3, it says, So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her to the letter. So she is listening to the wisdom of the And I wanted to talk about this for just a moment because I feel like we, we live in a society where we don't really truly respect and listen to our elders. Do you guys know that somebody who's lived a little bit more life than you has a lot of experience and probably wisdom that you do not? Oftentimes though, when we, we, when we want advice, we're just turning to our friends, to those who are our peers, right? not necessarily going to the people who have gone on before us who probably have walked through circumstances that are similar. Well, Ruth recognizes that Naomi has some more wisdom than she does. Naomi has more experience than she does. And so she's listening to that wisdom. Job 12, 12 says, wisdom is with the aged and understanding in length of days. That means the older you get, the smarter you should be, right? Now I know that's not always true for everybody, But especially if you know Jesus, don't you think the longer you have walked with Jesus, the wiser you should be? The better you should be able to counsel somebody who's a little younger than you, somebody who is not as uh, mature in their faith as you are? If you have not been walking with Jesus for very long, don't you think maybe you ought to talk to somebody who's been walking with him a little bit longer than you have? There's a wisdom there in that maturity that, that we simply can't have. So they have this understanding that we don't, simply because they've lived more life. Has anybody ever taken the time to sit down with an older parent or a grandparent and just hear their stories? That can be phenomenal. Uh, My grandfather on my mom's side, I called him Gramps, Uh, he passed away a few years ago, but he had some incredible stories. And if you would just sit and listen, you could learn a lot from Gramps. He was quite a man. I hope for those of you that, that have older relatives that are still alive, you take the time to listen to that wisdom because there is something precious there that you cannot get anywhere else. Now, let me tell you about, uh, related to this, going to the eye doctor. I went to the eye doctor this week, right? And the eye doctor, he, he knows a little bit more about eyes than I do. Go figure. He went to uh, school for that. Uh, he's been having his own successful practice for a number of years. Uh, he. Uh, It's just, and he he knows more, right? So when I go to the eye doctor, um, I'm probably gonna listen to his advice, right? Or, you know, I could just kind of wing it and be like, nah, I know what I'm doing. Let let me do my own prescription, right? So one of the things that he did while I was there is he said, okay, uh, it's been a little while since your last checkup. I would like to dilate your eyes. Anybody ever have your eyes dilated? Yeah, that's a really fun process, isn't it? Here, let me stick you in the eye with this thing, and it's going to be great. Then I'm going to shine a really bright light into your eye. I love it. No, not really. This really weird thing happened with me, though. So, so he put the drops in each eye, but I had one eye dilate significantly more than the other. My brother John saw me after it happened, and so, so I had one pupil that was like three times as big as the other. I looked a little like this. I felt a little like that too, because your perception is off and things look a little fuzzy. But you know what? Even though I felt a little weird, even though I looked a little weird, I listened to the experience of that eye doctor, right? Because I understand that he has been somewhere, he has seen some things, he has some experience and some knowledge and some wisdom that I do not, right? And so hopefully we we treat people in this manner. And I think we do for the most part, especially when it comes to things like the medical field, right? We understand you've got a lot of learning, a lot of education, a lot of experience that I don't. Unfortunately, we don't always do this just for people who are are a little bit older, a little bit more experienced than we are. So I wanna ask the question, who speaks into your life? Who is it that you're allowing to speak into your life? Is it somebody who's a little bit more experienced? Is it somebody who has some maturity? Is it somebody who's been walking with Christ longer than you have? Or is it somebody that you grew up with? Is it somebody that, maybe you guys became believers at the same time, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I am saying that you need somebody in your life who has been there before and who is willing to speak into your life. This is one of the things I love about community groups. And I feel like every time I'm up here, I'm making a plug for community groups, but, but here it is again, right? I have a group of men that meets every Thursday night at 6.30. Any man in here is welcome to join us, but know that, that we have real talk, right? So, so if you're not ready for real talk, if you're not ready to have somebody speak into your life in a meaningful way, don't show up. There, you've just been disinvited and invited in the same sentence. Congratulations. But, but really, like one of the things I love about our group is that we have guys that are in a variety of stages of life, right? some a little bit older, some a little bit younger, and we all speak into one another's lives. And I love having experience that I don't have speaking into my life. So who is speaking into your life and why are they speaking into your life? Is it just because they're your friend or have you intentionally sought out somebody who is that more experienced person who has a little bit more maturity than you do because that you know there is value in what they have to say. So think about that. And men, you're welcome to join me. 6.30 on Thursdays, we have an awesome group. Women, there's a group that meets at the same time here at the church, both groups at the church, and it's an awesome opportunity to have somebody speak into your life. So Ruth listens to more experience. She listens to Naomi, and she has decided that she's going to do what Naomi has told her to do. So in verse 7, it says, When Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry. He's had a good time. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. This is exactly what Naomi has told her to do. The party's been fun, but now it's time to rest, right? After, after you go out, you celebrate, you have a good time. It's nice to be able to just kick back, take it easy as well, isn't it? What's interesting here that we don't always understand is that he didn't go home to rest. He went and he laid down at the end of the heap of grain. And once again, this is the time of the judges. This is a time of of lawlessness to an extent because he's guarding the grain. Because we know that there are raiders and bandits at this time in Israel's history that they'll come in after all the hard work has been done and they will steal that grain. They'll take it away. That happens in our own life sometimes too, doesn't it? We've worked really hard for something and you guys know we have an enemy, right? He doesn't like it when we work hard. He doesn't like it when we've achieved something and he will try and steal things away from us. So he's guarding the grain. He's probably armed, right? If you're, if you're gonna guard something, you're not just gonna stand there idly, right? He's probably got a sword or a spear or something like that because there's this, this element of danger This is a real threat, otherwise he wouldn't be guarding it. Otherwise he would have gone home to sleep, right? Now remember, Ruth is a woman by herself in a dangerous place. Again, I wanna point out how incredibly brave it is of Ruth to say, I'm gonna go down to this place where maybe things could get ugly because there is this element of danger. They wouldn't be guarding the grain if there weren't a threat. And so Ruth is being incredibly brave in going and doing this. It also says that she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Notice she didn't come in like clapping her hands and yelling, Hey, Boaz, right? I would not be very happy if you did that to me in the middle of the night. I don't think any of you would be very happy if anyone in your life came in in the middle of the night yelling your name and making lots of noise. No, she came softly and she uncovered his feet and lay down. Now, I like to think that the reason she uncovered his feet is because she knew it eventually would wake him up, but not necessarily real quickly, right? Because uh, if you've ever been snuggled up under the blankets, nice and warm, and then maybe your feet do get uncovered somehow, maybe you wake up because you got a little bit cold, right? So, so Ruth came, comes softly, gently. She's not trying to disturb him, but she does do something to make sure that eventually he knows she's there because she's there for a purpose, right? She's trusting, she's being very vulnerable and very brave, and so she uncovers his feet and she lays down. So Ruth here has taken the position of a servant. You know, it wasn't really normal, actually, for people to lay at one another's feet sleeping. Weird, huh? Doesn't everybody do that today? No? Nobody? Kenneth, that's not how Jessica sleeps at night? Is that your feet? Weird. Weird. No, this, this is kind of a weird place for somebody to sleep, right? This is actually traditionally the position of a servant. So Ruth is in these actions saying, I am your servant. She has lowered herself to this position very intentionally because the idea is that if the master needs something in the middle of the night, the servant's right there, right? But, but the servant's the servant. The servant doesn't sleep next to the master or at the master's head. The servant sleeps next to the master's feet, And you know, they wore sandals back then. And I don't know if you've worn sandals all day long and it's been a hot day. Maybe you've been working outside. I bet you his feet stunk, right? This is not necessarily a pleasant place to be, but Ruth has intentionally taken this position of a servant. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. This isn't normal. What's going on here? He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant, spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. Not only has she taken the position of a servant here, she is saying, I am your servant, Boaz. This is what I'm here for, I am your servant. But the thing is, we don't like to be your servant, do we? We don't like to take this position of servant very much because servants typically don't have rights. We really get fired up about rights in our country, don't we? You better not infringe upon my rights. You ever think that maybe we ought to take the role of a servant instead? Instead of demanding our rights, we serve others first. This is what Ruth has chosen to do. She's she's just taking this position of a servant. She also uh, says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer, Now, we ask the question at the beginning, what is a Redeemer, right? Why does Ruth need a Redeemer? So I want to take a moment and talk about who the Redeemer is. Now, one of the the fascinating things to me about Scripture is that you see references to it all the time in pop culture. And so we actually have this picture of the Redeemer in all of our favorite movies, all of our favorite books, all of our favorite TV programs, there is oftentimes a Redeemer. So I'm gonna walk through just a few of those examples because I feel like sometimes we we don't have a good picture in our heads of what to expect of this Redeemer. Now, some of these are gonna recognize, some of them you may not. You're probably not as big a nerd as I am. That's okay, we can pray for you. So how about the Reclaimer, right? Any Halo fans in the house, right? Yes, all right, a few hands. So the Reclaimer, so you ever thought of the Redeemer in this manner? Or how about the last hope? However you felt about the last Jedi, you have to admit that final fight scene with Luke at the end was epic, right? He was so powerful, he was the last hope. Or the special, anybody like the Lego movie? Yeah, the special. The savior, I'm a fan of Once Upon a Time. Anybody else like that show? I am the only one in here, my goodness. Come on, people, thank you, thank you or the one, right? Any Matrix fans? Yeah, yeah, so the one. All of these people are a type of the Messiah because every single one of these people kind of follows a pattern. They're the one that we hope in, right? Whether it's Neo or Emmett or, uh, or Emma, like we, these are people that we are putting our hope in, that the characters in the TV show or in the movie are putting their hope in, right? They're the one we can count on, right? We know that ultimately Luke Skywalker is gonna come in and save the day, right? It may not seem like it at the beginning, but we know we can count on him, right? Or that Master Chief is gonna show up and he is going to help win the day. It's the one who sacrifices it all for us. If you're familiar with any of those movies or TV shows or video games, at some point, each of those characters pays the ultimate price don't they? Or at least they are willing to pay the ultimate price. Even in the Lego movie, right? Spoiler alert, this movie's like six years old, but whatever. Uh, even in the Lego movie, Emmett's like, oh, if I do this thing to stop the craggle, which is the big enemy, I'm going to explode. I'm going to die. And they make light of it and they make fun of it because it's a kid's movie. But, but even in that, right? Even in this kid's movie, there is this place of sacrificing it all for the ones that you love. Do you know that that's exactly what Jesus did? He sacrificed it all for the ones that he loved. And he still loves us. Because I believe that all great stories point to God's story. This is why when you see anything that, is, that has this huge following in popular culture, you always see these characters that are sacrificing themselves, that are fighting for the ones that they love, because it all ultimately points back to God's story. And all great heroes point to God's redeemer. If there is a hero in your favorite story that you aspire to or that you love or that, man, you wish that that character was a real person, how amazing would that be? It's because they are Christ-like because ultimately that's who we are all looking for. All great heroes point to Jesus. And Boaz is no exception. So I want you to have this in mind because sometimes we get this picture of just a simple farmer, right? And yes, that was what he did. But Boaz was a hero, and I think that we are supposed to remember Jesus when we look at Boaz because of what we see Boaz do. Now, a redeemer in Hebrew is this word that I'll probably slaughter, uh, goel or guile. I feel like I'm talking in baby speak. You ever do that, you know, when there's a little baby and you just talk to them funny? Yeah, that's, that's basically how you speak Hebrew. Uh, but it means to redeem to act as a kinsman redeemer, to avenge, revenge, ransom, or do the part of a kinsman. So we're gonna dive into a little bit the role of a redeemer. So, so this is Boaz's role. And this is actually a, a position within the family. And this is what Boaz, what Boaz knows that he is supposed to do and what others in the family know that Boaz is supposed to do. So the first thing is rescuing the slave. And I'm gonna have several scripture references here that I'd encourage you if you wanna learn more about these, go and take a look at them. Rescuing the slave, this comes from Leviticus 25, 47 through 55. And I want to take uh, just a moment and thank Michelle for lending me some resources this week. It made it really easy to look some of this up and to find some of this. So thank you, Michelle, for doing that. Um, one of the first roles of the Redeemer is to rescue the slave. So if, if an Israelite got to the point where they just could not make it anymore, they have lost all of their finances, maybe there's been a death, maybe there's been something that has caused them to to reach this place of desperation, they might sell themselves as a slave to a foreigner. It was the role of the redeemer to rescue that person from slavery, to say, whatever your debt is, I'm gonna pay it, you're going to be free. It was also the role of the Redeemer to be the Avenger of Blood. Now, this is uh, not Marvel's next movie. That sounds like a little bit dark, Avenger of Blood, but, um, but what it means is that if, if there was a murder, the Redeemer was the man who would make things right. He would go and he would find who had killed that family member. And depending upon the circumstances around that death, he would be the one to end that person's life because that was justice. That made sure that that, that person who was killed that they they were avenged. Then he was responsible for restoring land. Uh, Sometimes if a a landowner, uh, again, was falling on hard times, they might sell their land or lease their land to another so that they could get the income from that. But again, the land is really, really important to God, and it's really important to God that the land stay with the family that God prescribed that it stay with. So if that land was sold outside of the family, it was the role of the Redeemer to go and purchase that land to bring it back into the family. The final role of the Redeemer that I wanna talk about this morning is providing an heir. And this is one that is a little bit weird in our culture. But if a woman had her husband die and she was childless, it was the Redeemer's role to make sure that she had a child. So he has this responsibility to provide an heir, and the idea is that the dead man's name is not cut off, Right? that he has an heir, that his family line continues. These are big responsibilities. Now, these might sound a little bit weird in our culture today, but these were very relevant to the Israelites because they were all about family. God had given them very specific instruction about the land, And that's what these things cover, is making sure that the family, the family land, the family members, the family lineage, was all taken care of. So this is the role of the redeemer. Boaz knows it. And Ruth is probably aware of it at this point as well because she's probably learned enough about Israelite culture after being there, after talking to Naomi, that she knows that this is expected. So by Israelite law, law, Ruth had a right to an heir. She had a right. She could have came up to Boaz and said, hey, you got a job to do, buddy. Now, ladies, I don't think that's a very romantic way to initiate something with your husband, um, but she could have done that because we, we have this tendency to fight for our rights, right? We want, we want our rights and you better not infringe upon them. By saying, spread your wings over your servant, she was saying, I want your covering over me. I want your protection over me. I want you over me as my husband. It's really interesting, too. This is a great callback to chapter 2 and verse 12, where Boaz is saying to Ruth, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Boaz recognizes that first, Ruth has come to take refuge under God, under God's covering, under God's protection. But now Ruth is specifically asking for Boaz's covering. This is a marriage proposal, but instead of demanding a right, she humbly requests. She has taken this position of a servant. She's laying at his feet and she doesn't say, "'Hey, Boaz, this is my right, this is what you need to do.'" She says, "'Will you cover me? "'Will you take me to be your wife?' It's a bold proposal in a humble manner. It was not inappropriate of Ruth to suggest this because this was her right. But the way that she did it is so beautiful because she said, Boaz, I trust you. I'm going to just put myself out there and I leave it up to you, even though she knows it's her right. So Ruth is in this place of submission, which oftentimes we think of as a dirty word in our society, right? Because submitting means that somebody is over you, somebody's telling you what to do, and we don't like that. We don't like to be told what to do. I wanna talk about Ephesians five, where this idea of submission comes from. And this is uh, sometimes a tricky passage for us because it says some things that we don't like. And and ladies, I I can't say that I understand all that's going on in your heads and hearts, but I I can imagine that if I were in your position, I would have a hard time with this passage. So please forgive me if I I don't fully understand and grasp everything that's going on, but I'm gonna do my best. Ephesians five, starting in verse 22, it says, "'Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord.'" For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So God has set up an order of how things are supposed to be. And whenever we don't like something in Scripture, well, here's the thing. We, we probably have something wrong with us rather than something in Scripture. But this is not just about wives, okay? This is also about husbands, it says, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands, but husbands have a significant role here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So yes, wives are given this instruction, but also husbands, we got a big responsibility, right? This is not just reminding us of what Jesus did. This is saying, this is our role. That's kind of weighty, isn't it? Let me tell you about Crystal's perspective on this because I feel like my wife has this beautiful perspective on this passage. before we were married, we went through premarital counseling. I hope that, uh, that any of you who are looking at marriage uh, do take the time to do premarital counseling. I know Pastor Jim and Carmen do it all the time for couples who are about to be married. And the, the process for that is to understand what's going to happen in your marriage, right? You wanna go in eyes wide open. Our pastor at the time said he would rather break us up in premarital counseling than for us to get married and divorced afterwards, right? So I appreciate that perspective. And one of the things that we do is we talk about the role of the husband and the role of the wife. And we went through this passage and uh, Pastor Pat, that was his name, Pat said to me, Caleb, what are you supposed to do here? And I say, oh, I'm, I'm supposed to, to, to love Crystal and, and sacrifice for her. He said, and? And he starts walking me through everything. I'm responsible to make sure that she is right with Jesus. I'm responsible to make sure that she is presented to him without spot or wrinkle or any such blemish right? That's a tall order. I'm like, oh man, that's rough. And then he says to Crystal, Crystal, what's your perspective on this? And Crystal has this beautiful perspective. I mentioned when I spoke previously that that her name means clarity, and she brings clarity to me so often. Crystal's perspective on this passage is that at least in our society, women get to choose who they submit to. So, So ladies, if you are not yet married, let me tell you, if you want to follow Scripture and submit to your husband, choose a man that you can willingly submit to because that is the kind of man that should love you as Christ loves the church. And so that's what Crystal said and it just kind of blew me away because first she's right, like she, she doesn't have to marry me, right? Second, she's communicating to me, Caleb, I think you can do this. I think that you can lead our family in this way, that you can lead our family and love me as Christ loves the church, which is, it's it's incredibly encouraging, but it's also a little intimidating, right men? To think that, that we are responsible and then to think not only are we responsible, but there's somebody who's saying, yeah, I think you can do this. That's a big deal. So that's Crystal's perspective. And then of course my responsibility is to live up to that, right? Now I'm not Jesus. I never will be Jesus, but I can look at his example and I can see how he loves the church. And this is part of a a prayer that I pray regularly is, Lord, help me to love Crystal as you love the church because he loves us so much, you guys. Sacrificed everything for us. So that's my responsibility. Submission is a choice. We choose who we submit to. And ladies, that's true of submitting to the man that you love. You get to choose who that is. It's also true of the situations that we put ourselves in, whether it's, it's work or another relationship. We choose who we submit to. And leading in love is also a choice. So men, we have to choose to lead in love. It's not one or the other. If she chooses to submit to you, you need to choose to lead in love. And really, you need to choose to lead in love regardless of whether or not she submits to you. Some of you may be having a hard time saying, well, I love her, but she doesn't submit to me. Man up. That doesn't matter. You do you. Lead in love. Both of these take practice. This is not something that just happens magically, right? It takes practice to be able to learn to submit and to lead in love. Now, I want to talk about my grandparents, Nana and Gramps, and uh, I feel like they have this really beautiful picture of, of submitting and leading, and both of them have uh, passed away, uh, but there was uh, a time uh, a few years ago, my grandparents were in their 80s, and, uh, and Nana has this idea, and she suggests it to Gramps and and Gramps kind of gets worked up. He says, well, why would I do it that way? And I don't think we need to do that. And blah, 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 blah. He's kind of grumpy about it. And my mom looks at her mom, Nana, and she's like, why are you letting him talk to you that way? All right, ladies, can you relate to that? You don't want somebody talking to their spouse that way, right? You don't want to see a man talking to his wife that way. And Nana says, well, just wait. Because Nana has learned how to submit. Now, Gramps is still learning how to lead in love, but he gets there, right? Because a few days later, He says, well, I was thinking about doing this thing, and I think we ought to do it this way. And you know what, it just happens to be the way that Nana suggested that he do it. And then he looks at Nana, and he kind of laughs, and he says, was that my idea, or was that your idea? Because it may have taken him a minute to get there, but because she chose first to submit, he was able to lead in love. It took him a little bit, but he got there, because it is a learning experience. They had been married for about 60 years at that point. If they are still figuring it out at that point, you and I are still figuring it out, okay? And that's not a bad thing, but we should be growing in it. We should be learning to lead in love men and to submit women. So men, are you leading her in love? And women, are you submitting to his leadership? Because this is what Ruth and Boaz are doing. This is the role that God ordained, and it's only when a man is leading in love that a woman can truly submit. Submission's not a dirty word. This is actually part of God's plan. And Ruth submits with an expectation. She is hopeful. And this is Boaz's response. He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Boaz knows her reputation. He knows who she is, and he exceeds expectations. You know, it may have been a situation where Ruth comes and she she makes this request, and Boaz has to think about it, right? Or he says, "Uh, well, this this hasn't occurred to me before. Give me a minute. Uh, Can we touch base tomorrow on this? No, immediately, Boaz not only says yes, but he says, I'll do all that you ask because I know who you are. I have seen that you are a worthy woman. He exceeds those expectations because I believe this thought has already occurred to him. I believe he has seen Ruth's character. I believe he has seen who she is, and he loves who she is. How often do we miss out because we don't ask? Right? Ruth has humbly asked, and Boaz immediately responded, but I believe that we miss out sometimes on the good things in life because we don't ask. Now that might be in a relationship with another person. It might be in our relationship with God. But I believe that when we ask, God wants to show up and he exceeds expectations just like Boaz did because he did respond immediately. But then he tells her, and now it's true that I'm a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Now in the immediate, this means another individual, but, but the greater perspective tells us, oh, that's where God is, right? We've been asking the question, where is God in this story? There is a redeemer that is closer. There is a redeemer that is greater. Boaz is an awesome man. He is a redeemer, but he is not the redeemer. So I wanna ask you today, who is your redeemer? Do you know Jesus? If you don't, then I invite you to meet him today. Will you ask him? And I don't just mean ask him to be your redeemer, ask him to be the Lord of your life, but, but what are you going through? Will you ask him for some help? Because you know what, he wants to help you. So Boaz tells Ruth, remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. And I love this because he's not telling her go away, it's dangerous, he's still protecting. Then she lays at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. He's protecting her reputation here as well, right? He doesn't want somebody thinking that something inappropriate happened because nothing inappropriate did. He said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. He also is providing, he's protecting and providing still even though he may not be her redeemer. He's acting as the redeemer. He's doing these things, even though it's not a guarantee. He doesn't know. This is the kind of man that Boaz is. This is the kind of man that I want to be, where even if I don't know that things are gonna work out the way that I hope, I'm acting like the man that I should be. I'm acting and leading in love. And so in uh, verse 16, she came to her mother-in-law and she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Naomi wants to know what happened. Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And that's the end of chapter 3. We know that Boaz is motivated, right? He wants to go do this. He has seen who Ruth is, and he's ready. Now, he's not going to go wake up the other guy in the middle of the night, but he's going to take care of it first thing in the morning. We're going to get to that in just a couple weeks. I want to invite you once again to step into their shoes. Are you like Ruth? Or are you like Boaz? I believe we can actually relate to both of these characters because God has a role for us to play. And sometimes we are in the position of Ruth and sometimes we're in the position of Boaz because God's given us these examples of those two to let us know these two big roles in his story. And sometimes we're one and sometimes we're the other because we are the redeemed like Ruth. We are the ones that are hurting and we are the ones that are in need. And sometimes that's who we are, but we are also the redeemer like Boaz. Not the big redeemer, not Jesus of course, but sometimes Jesus says, I wanna use you in that person's life. And that's a beautiful thing. So we submit ourselves to our redeemer and where you're used by him to help redeem others. It's part of that whole salvation and sanctification thing again is that first we are saved and then Jesus says, I want you on my team. In Luke 4:18, Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is Jesus's mission statement. And before he returned to heaven after his time on earth, he gave us our mission. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. This is our mission. If we know Jesus, this is how we are supposed to be redeemers. Jesus says, I want you on my team. He invites the rescued to join the rescue mission. Remember, God wants us to depend on him, but he also wants us to work alongside him. He wants us to do this. So again, are you like Ruth? Do you need a redeemer? For those in the room that may not know Jesus, today is your opportunity to know someone who will always love you, who will never leave you, never forsake you. If you already know him, are you hurting? Because it's not a one and done scenario. Jesus says, if you need something, let me know. Or maybe you're like Boaz. Maybe your relationship with God is really good right now. Maybe you're not in a place of hurting, but maybe... You can help somebody else. Are you ready to help redeem? Because the world is hurting. So we've got these two big roles and I hope that you prayerfully consider what place you're in today. Are you like Ruth or are you like Boaz? Are you in a place where you say, Jesus, I need your help? Or are you in a place where you say, Jesus, I am ready to help? Because guess what? What? He wants us to be a part of this. He wants that relationship with us and he wants us to be working alongside him. I'm gonna take just a moment and pray for everybody. I'd like you all to just take a moment, close your eyes, bow your head. We do this so that we can focus on God. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are our redeemer. I thank you that you do love us. I thank you that you've come for us just like Boaz came to redeem Ruth. If you're in the room today and you know that you need Jesus, I want you to just take a moment, if you're brave enough, if you're gonna be vulnerable enough to say, Jesus, I need you. If you're on the live stream even and you are ready to accept him today, say, Jesus, I need you. I want you to be my redeemer. I want you to be the loving leader in my life. I'm sorry for how I have strayed. I am sorry for how I have sought other things. I am ready to let you lead. I submit to you, Jesus. If you are ready to be used by him today, if you know that Jesus is your redeemer, you know that he is your loving leader, and you say, Jesus, I'm ready to work alongside of you, then just pray with me, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I am ready to be used by you today. Show me who is hurting that you would have me help. Show me what you would have me do. Speak to me. Take me with you, Lord, because I am ready. Lord Jesus, we love you, we praise you, we submit to you, we let you lead and we work alongside you. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus, amen.